0: Do you ever make things overly difficult? Like opening a box by hand when there's a pair of scissors in the drawer right next to you? Gosh, I just did that. (laughs) Taking the hard road is like being an e-commerce seller and not using ShipStation. Go the easy way and use ShipStation with all your storefronts and automate things like fulfillment and tracking. Easy peasy. ShipStation isn't magic, but it will make your shipping stress disappear. Sign up using promo code MYTHS for a free 60-day trial today at ShipStation.com and start breathing easier with every shipment. That's two whole months of stress-free shipping, and it's free to try. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in MYTHS. ShipStation. Make ship happen. Quick disclaimer. There's some stronger-than-usual violence this week, with some eye stuff and some evisceration. Not super graphic at all, but it's there. For more info, check out the post at MythPodcast.com. This week on Myths and Legends, we are back in the many, many narratives of the Panchatantra. You'll see why it might be a good idea to eat all your gold and jewels, and we'll witness a fascinating discussion on the weight ratios and airspeed velocities of unladen birds. On the creature this week, we'll see that if you catch a fish that has fingers, you might want to toss it back. Unless, that is, you want to live forever. This is Myths and Legends, episode 283B To the Victor. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on this podcast, we were in the jungle with some animal politics. A jackal, Victor, is on the outs with his monarch, Rusty the Lion. To get back in the lion's good graces, he starts a long con that involves helping the lion befriend a bull that was abandoned in the forest a bull named Lively. At the end of last week's episode, Victor kicked off his plan by going to the lion's court, now mostly deserted, because the lion wasn't doing much hunting anymore, and telling Rusty the lion that his new friend Lively was going to murder him. But why though? Why would Lively do that? Rusty asked, almost as soon as Victor dropped the accusation. Victor said that, oh, he was just a lowly jackal. He didn't dine to understand the complex inner workings of the minds of his betters. What he did know, though, was what he heard, and what he saw. Rusty asked, okay, what did Victor see? Victor pointed all around the lion. He saw a lot fewer animals, for one. It was true, the story says that when you don't pay your workers well, you can't expect them to stick around. The court under the banyan tree had dwindled after the lions stopped leaving behind kills for them to eat. Victor said that this new relationship with Lively had alienated Rusty from the rest of the jungle. He worried that it was by design. Rusty said that that was impossible, he and Lively were friends. He had given Lively his word that the bull would be safe in this jungle. Victor shook his head sometimes people could be so ungrateful, like the ungrateful man. Rusty didn't know what the jackal was talking about with that one. Cheek, who was standing nearby, rolled his eyes, and Victor started in on a story. The human, named Sacrifice, was having a hard time supporting his family. So he was on a hike. His wife had told him he better come back with some food for the children or don't bother coming back at all. I don't know. I feel like you're just kind of running away from your problems. Like, how much food are you going to find in the woods? The tiger trapped in the pit in front of him asked. Sacrifice, the human, nodded. Fair, true. Maybe he was just trying to escape his problems. What do you think, monkey? The monkey climbed on top of the tiger's head and said that he agreed with the tiger. Sacrifice, the human hiker, needed to be honest with his wife, sure, but most importantly, honest with himself. The snake among the leaves in the pit said that it was only by revealing our true selves that we can be fully known, and it was only by being fully known that we could be fully loved. Sacrifice smiled. True. So true. Uh, can you let us out of here, please? The human... "'Cowering at the other side of the pit?' asked. "'Sacrifice smacked himself on his head. "'Sorry, yeah, his bad, absolutely.' "'He found a downed tree and lowered it into the pit. "'Regular life of pie situation you all had going on down there,' "'sacrifice said as the tiger, the monkey, the snake, and the human "'climbed up the tree and out of the pit. "'The four were so grateful that, before they parted ways, "'they all talked to Sacrifice directly.' Tiger said that he would repay Sacrifice if Sacrifice came to his mountain lair. He didn't want to drag a debt into the next life. Monkey, Snake, and the human all told Sacrifice where they lived, and the human added that he was a goldsmith. If Sacrifice brought him some gold, he would work it into any shape the man wanted for free. Sacrifice said he had just explained how he was having a hard time feeding his family, but sure... If he came across any gold, he would stop by. Sacrifice shook his head. This guy. Anyway, Sacrifice continued on and didn't find anything on his wanderings. On his way back through the forest, he remembered the animal's invitations. He stopped by Monkey's place first, and the monkey, beaming, said that he had hoped the human would come and gathered extra fruit. He piled Sacrifice's sack full, told him any time he needed more to stop by, and led Sacrifice to the tiger's place, in the mountains. There, they saw a corpse. I was hoping you would stop by, the tiger, munching on a human, said to Sacrifice. A rich guy had gone riding through the mountains, and the tiger ate his horse, and he was working on the rich guy now, but he didn't need any of this shiny junk. The tiger gestured to the sacks of gold and jewels. Did Sacrifice want it? Sacrifice accepted the gift, mainly because it was way too many riches, but also because he didn't want to offend the tiger picking his teeth with a collarbone. He dragged the riches off home. That night, the family ate the fruit. And in the morning, Sacrifice took some gold to the goldsmith he had rescued, so the guy could make good on his, frankly, kind of selfish promise. The goldsmith looked at the gold like he was sick. Where did Sacrifice get this? Sacrifice said he found it, In the woods? It it fell off the back of a horse, don't worry about it. Could the goldsmith work it into something nice? He wanted to sell it to be super rich. The goldsmith said that's what he did. Sacrifice could come back for it tomorrow. When Sacrifice returned, he found the palace guards waiting for him. The gold, it seemed, had belonged to the prince. The prince who had just gone missing in the mountains. The goldsmith knew because he had made the pieces in the bag. It was obvious. Sacrifice had found the prince alone on the road, murdered him, and robbed him. Sacrifice was fettered, and he would be publicly impaled in the morning. That night, in his jail cell, Sacrifice heard a noise on the stone. He turned to see Snake, the snake he had rescued from the pit. Hey, bud, Sacrifice said, could Snake do him a solid and bite these ropes freeing him? So you'd still be in a locked prison cell? Snake asked. No, he could do Sacrifice one better. Later on that night, a cry went up from the palace. The queen. The queen was ill. From his spot in the jail cell, Sacrifice could see physician after physician rushing to the palace, but no one could help her. She was dying. The following morning, when Sacrifice was dragged from his cell, so he could be publicly kebabbed, he told his guards that he could do it. He could cure the queen. The queen, actually, was already cured. But the snake knew how desperate the king would be to save his beloved, after the pair just lost their son. Snake had timed his poison just right. So that, when Sacrifice merely touched the woman's forehead, she started feeling better. The king embraced the man, weeping tears of joy, but then remembered why sacrifice was there in the first place. Sacrifice needed to explain how he came across the prince's gold. Sacrifice explained the whole situation, from his rescue of the goldsmith, to the tiger, to the man turning him in for murder. Sacrifice was not only freed, but since he evidently had magical powers, he was added to the king's council, and was given a governorship over a thousand villages. The goldsmith was arrested good Rusty said ungrateful human then he gasped oh my gosh you know what I just realized sacrifice had saved him in the forest just like I saved lively and look how the goldsmith repaid him for his kindness trying to get him killed do you think that that could be a coincidence I kind of don't think that that's a coincidence Victor shook his head wow you know what he had never thought about it like that Rusty made connections he never did. That was incredible. It did kind of remind him of Leap and Creep, though. Leap and Creep? Creep was a louse living in a king's bed. And Leap? Leap was a flea who needed to leave. Creep had been there for ages. She ruled the bed. It was soft, and if she played it just right, she could bite the king and feast on his sweet, sweet royal blood without him even noticing. Leap said it wasn't fair. Just because she had been there didn't mean it only belonged to her. He was staying. Creep, the louse, said fine. He could stay, but he had to be smart about it. The king would come and lay down, and it was only after he was out, overmastered from wine or fatigue, that they should dare bite him and even then, only on the bottom of his feet, where he wouldn't immediately notice. Leap said, fine, whatever, he's got it. He didn't, and the next time, pretty much as soon as the king lay down, the flea leapt on him and bit his forearm. The king shrieked at the sting of the bite and leapt from bed. He called his servants to come search the sheets, kill anything they saw. Leap, the flea, was already gone, having leapt away, but Creep was still sleeping the king's servants crushed her. Ah, the moral's like, don't share your house with a stranger or else they might kill you, Victor said. He didn't know, though. He could never understand the subtle, deeper meanings like a lion could. Rusty gasped. No, yeah, that made sense. Wait, what if he was creep and lively was leap? Victor said that the isolation from the other forest animals reminded him of the story of the blue jackal, King Rusty know the story of the Blue Jackal? The Blue Jackal, well, he didn't start off blue. He was just a normal jackal who lived in the caves by a city suburb. He would sometimes go into the city looking for food. But tonight, that had been a horrible, horrible decision. I mean, in hindsight, any decision that ends with you being chased by stray dogs couldn't have been all that great. The jackal could only find one place to hide. The house of a dyer. He dove into the first basket he found and the dogs were no longer his biggest problem. The basket, it seemed, wasn't a basket, but a vat full of sloshing indigo dye. The jackal clawed his way out and made it back to the forest. And what he found there was terror. Terror because they had never seen an animal such as this. A blue creature? It could only mean one thing. The gods had arrived. The jackal thought about it. Yes. Yes, they had arrived, and they were him. He was they? He said he was a god. There we go. Indra had realized that the forest creatures didn't have a monarch and anointed him, fierce howl, to rule over the forest. Immediately, the forest bowed. He appointed tiger lords, elephant guards, a leopard butler, and a monkey to hold his parasol, and y- you're just a jackal, He heard. Spinning around, Fierce Hal noticed a pair of jackals sniffing him. He said, no, what? You are. The pair sniffed again, yeah, you're a jackal. Look, they didn't care. They just wanted in on his grift. Fierce Hal chuckled nervously as the monkey was starting to take notice. What? He turned to his leopard butler. Get the lions and the elephants. Exile and banish all jackals from the kingdom as they dragged the jackals away. The two yelled back that Fierce Howl would regret this. He would see, but he wouldn't see. He would hear. It had been a couple of weeks, and Fierce Howl was getting back into the swing of things. After that disruption, when he heard, Far off in the forest, Oh no. It was a howl. The howl of the jackals. The lion sneered. He would send his lionesses out to take care of them. Fierce Howl, Didn't hear any of that, though. It took everything he had to stay quiet, to make it seem like he wasn't a jackal. But the howling in the distance, he fought, as all his body wanted to do was respond. Then, the dam broke. Fierce howl threw back his head, and let forth the loudest howl of his entire life. Man, that was good. Whew. He opened his eyes to the lion, the leopard, an elephant, and more, staring at him. The monkey threw down his parasol. Hey, the jackals were right. This guy really was a jackal. And they tore Fierce Howl to pieces. Yeah, if he hadn't sent his friends away, Victor said, shaking his head. Rusty, the lion, refused to believe it, though. He saw the truth of Victor's stories, but Lively? He and Lively were buds. I hope that is the case, Victor noted. But isn't that just what a con man, con bull, would want you to think? Look, he's a grass nibbler. You're a carnivore. To you, he's food. He's making the only play he thinks he has right now. All I'm saying is, if he comes into your presence and seems off at all, you need to be prepared for the worst. I've heard about how bulls fight, and it is brutal. But the telltale signs he's about to attack are as if he's timid, tense, and weighing his options. That means he's about to thrust his horns. Victor said that he liked Lively too. He was the one who introduced the pair. But his first loyalty was to Rusty in the jungle. He believed that Lively was good, but Rusty needed to be prepared for the worst. We'll see the second phase of Victor's plan, but that will be right after this. Going to see your bud, Rusty? Victor said to Lively, the bull, down by the river. Before the bull could reply, Victor stepped in. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. He's going to eat you. Lively laughed. Why would Rusty eat him? He was teaching Rusty to be a better lion. Victor shrugged. He was only relaying what he had heard. To Rusty, Lively the bull was food. And Rusty might view Lively as a friend, but heavy lies the head that wears the crown. Rusty had obligations to his realm. Lively's teachings had made Rusty unreliable for food for the rest of the jungle. And Rusty risked a coup if he kept indulging the bull. Lively began to quake. He he should go talk to Rusty. There had to be some mistake. Talking is great, for sure, Victor said. Lively should do it, definitely. Just be careful. Lively said he understood, but (laughs) he was a bull. He was massive. He wouldn't hurt the king, but he could defend himself if absolutely necessary. Victor grimaced. True enough, true enough. But Lively should remember, even the ocean fell to the plover. Plover? Lively asked. Victor said it was a tiny shore bird. You know, those things that run away from the waves when they crash on the shore? Those. And that thing defeated the ocean, Victor explained. Yeah, the ocean's gonna come wash away our nest, Constance, the bird mom-to-be said to Sprawl, her mate. "'Babe, please,' Sprawl said, waving a wing. His family had been there, like, forever. He and the ocean, they go way back. They were solid. The ocean was his bro. He wouldn't do that. Constance waved a wing at the sea. They were the only nest left this close to the water. Soon, it would reach up and steal their chicks' eggs from them. Everyone else had left, By ignoring the counsel of his friends and mate, he was acting like Shellneck the Turtle. And she started the story of Shellneck the Turtle. Shellneck had two friends, Slim and Grim. They were two ganders. And the trio looked together at the dry lake bed. How does a lake just like dry up? Shellneck said. His neck looking more and more leather-like than usual. Slim and Grim said it hadn't rained for 12 years, so probably that. Anywho, they just realized that they were birds, and they can fly away. So they were gonna do that. Sorry for the, you know, dying thing. Slim and Grim started flapping their wings, when Shellneck yelled for them to wait, please, save him. The two ganders said, look, they would love to, but he was a turtle. This wasn't a Mario game, he didn't have wings. Shellneck agreed. Yes, but he did have this. He picked up a stick. You see, a five-ounce bird can't carry a one-pound turtle, but if two ganders carried the stick together with the turtle hanging off of it in the middle, they could manage. The ganders thought about weight ratios, and yeah, the math checked out. They could do it and stay aloft long enough to get to a different climate, but that depended on something. The turtle didn't have fingers, so he would have to bite. Did the turtle think that he had the requisite jaw strength to hang from a stick on a trip to a different climate? Shelnick was already positioning himself in the middle of the stick. To hang on for his life? In more ways than one? Absolutely. The Ganders took a deep breath. Alright, well, they had to advise against it. It seemed super dangerous, but they would try to help their friend. Shalnak said that he was taking a vow of silence from this moment until the time when he landed in his new home, in paradise. It took no small amount of effort for the birds to grip the stick, with the turtle dangling in between, and flapped their wings up into the air. But they managed. They struggled a good distance until they were flying over a city, their wings beating against the strain, and the turtle's jaw locked on the stick. When they saw... people... Even in our world, it would be noteworthy to see two ganders carrying a turtle dangling in between them, and it was no different in those times. A crowd gathered below, running in the street after the trio, wondering what was going on. Was that intentional? I mean, how could it not be? Birds don't carry something in between them, and turtles probably don't willingly stay suspended in air. What was going on? Shellneck's eye moved to see the crowd marveling below, and he looked back up to his buddies slim and grim. Hey, what are all those people chatting about down there? Shellneck said. Then his eyes widened. Oh no! The ganders had just enough time to watch Shellneck fall to the city below, landing hard on the stone street. But being a turtle, he instinctually did what turtles do when they sensed danger and pulled his legs and head in his shell, sparing him from death upon impact. Unfortunately, it couldn't spare him from the city's unique culinary tastes. Like some sort of zombie movie, the crowd rushed Shellneck, tearing him to pieces nearly the moment he landed so they could take the flesh home to make turtle soup. Slim and Grim winced, dropped the stick, and continued on toward more favorable climates. "Babe, for real?" Sprawl said to Constance. He said it loud enough for the ocean outside to hear. "No one." Not even the ocean could come for her while these arms protected her. But you don't have arms, Constance noted. Oh my gosh, you know what I mean, Sprawl squawked. Someone else knew, too, because just outside, the ocean grumbled. He would show this plover who was boss. And he did. The next day, after Constance laid the eggs, the ocean swept over the nest almost immediately taking the eggs with it. Sprawl returned home to find Constance beside herself with anguish. She said, with her children gone, she was going to set herself on fire. Sprawl said, one, that is never the answer, don't do that. Two, they're birds, they don't even know how to start fires. And three, he would handle it. He would fight the ocean. Constance, while not exactly mollified, did kind of want to see how her husband was going to fight the ocean. She was skeptical, but Sprawl said that success was rooted in the will. And he, he had an iron strong bill. She rolled her eyes. And that's not my cheesiness, that's in the original. Sprawl did need a plan, though. And for help, he went to his buddy, the heron. The heron told the story of a sparrow that wanted to kill an elephant for smashing her nest. So, she enlisted a frog, gnat, and woodpecker for help. In the end, the gnat went and sang the elephant to sleep. Because when you have a bug buzzing around your ear, the first thing you think is, Wow, this is just like a lullaby. I want to fall asleep to this. The elephant did, though. And the woodpecker came and cranked the intensity up to 11 when he pecked out the elephant's eyes. The elephant, who now couldn't see, stumbled through the forest, following the frog's croaks in search of water. He only found the pit the frog was luring him to, and he died. So yeah, you need friends to help you out if you're going to fight the ocean, Sprawl heard. If you thought this was going to be an inspirational bit, where they all worked together to defeat the ocean, like countless birds swooping down and taking buckets and all that, and scooping the ocean away, bit by bit, as a show of solidarity, or dumping land in the ocean, so that it fills up and goes away like Minecraft, well, yeah, they tried all that. And failed. Because it's the ocean. I really told this story for the turtle story in the middle. Because, in the end, the birds solved their problem by crying. On the beach. A lot. Basically, they ended up telling the teacher that the ocean was being mean to them. And Garuda, Vishnu's super bird that we talked about in the last episode, took care of it for them. All birds on earth are in his domain, and if he didn't look after his servants, well, how did that reflect on him? He threatened to dry up the ocean in an instant, and the ocean, knowing that Garuda could make good on this threat, and wasn't just a bunch of birds with dirt, relented, and spat the eggs back out on the shore. The plover had defeated the ocean. Did he though? Lively, the bull asked. Victor said that the ocean was defeated, that's the main takeaway here. The ocean underestimated the power of the birds and nearly paid for it with its ocean life. Victor didn't want Lively to do the same with Rusty the lion. Lively said okay. He appreciated Victor's advice and, unlike the turtle, he would listen to it. What did Victor recommend? How would Lively know Rusty was about to attack? Victor said that was easy. Predators pay intense attention to something they're about to hunt. If Rusty's ears were all pricked up, if he didn't seem relaxed, or if he was studying Lively from far off, then the bull could know that the lion was gearing up to attack. He should approach with extreme caution. Well, Rusty and I are best buddies. He would never do that to me, Lively said. I hope you're right, Victor said. I hope you're right. We'll see Cheek lose his stomach for his brother's ruthless ambition, but that will, once again, be right after this. This is Rusty's fault, ultimately, Cheek said, disgusted. He had never been on board with Victor's plan, but he was even more put off by it now that it was in motion. Any master that looks to someone like you for guidance, deserves what they get. Cheek sneered. What's that supposed to mean? Victor asked. Cheek was talking like a jackal who didn't want to be on Victor's good side when he came to power. Uh, that means that you think you're so smart, Cheek sneered, like Lakshman and the iron-eating mice. Oh, you don't need to tell this one. I know about the iron-eating mice, Victor tried to say, but Cheek had already begun. Naduk had left his iron balance beam with his friend, a fellow merchant, Lakshman while Naduk traveled across the world for a few years. When he returned home, he was taking stock of things and decided that he wanted his balance beam back. He went to Lakshman's store and asked for it, but the man only shook his head. Ah, bummer. Yeah, that was destroyed years ago. Eaten by mice. Duke blinked. Eaten by mice. Lakshman nodded. Yep, iron-eating mice Who knew that that was a thing? It wasn't, but Lakshman wanted to keep the balance beam, and if it was accidentally destroyed, well, he couldn't be held responsible for that. Wow, Randuk said. Iron-eating mice. Well, such is life. Nothing in the universe has any permanence. Anyway, mind sending your son, named Money God, to help carry my stuff while I bathe in the river? I mean, this sounds like a weird request. But maybe Lakshman was feeling guilty about stealing the balance beam. So he agreed. He called for his son, named Money God, to help this man go bathe in the woods. An hour or so later, Nduk returned. He popped into Lakshman's store. Oh, sorry, but Lakshman's son? Carried off by a hawk. Nduk said that his son was 14. That's impossible. Nduk was only relaying what he had seen. A hawk came down and lifted the boy off the ground and flew away. Naduk tried to stop the bird, but no dice. Sorry. Sorry? That's my son, Lakshman screamed. The merchant immediately ran to the authorities and said that Naduke had carried off his son. It went to court, where Naduke kept insisting that a hawk had done it. But the authorities weren't buying it either. Naduke looked at his friend. Oh, it made sense. In a world where mice ate iron, a hawk could carry off a child. Lakshman shook his head and gave Naduk his balance beam back. Naduk took Lakshman into the woods, to the cave where he had trapped Money God and restored the man's child to him. And everyone got on with their lives, despite Naduk actually kidnapping a child to prove his point. Yeah, but Lakshman's con was bad. Iron-eating mice, you can see right through that. Please, mine are great, Victor said. Check this out. The jackal pointed to the bull and the lion, approaching each other. The mere association with you is evil, like the robber and his victims, Cheek said, wincing at what he was about to see. Victor turned from the tense bull and lion. What? A long time ago, a merchant made friends with a prince, but the prince didn't want to be a prince, and the merchant didn't think being a merchant was too fun so they decided to run away together to live the lives they wanted. Unfortunately, to do what you want, you need cash. They went to the mountain in a far-off land. It was, reportedly, full of gems. And they weren't wrong. They were able to find two massive, priceless gems. The only problem? Well, everyone else knew of this cave as well. And the woods were full of thieves and cutthroats who would kill without a thought for whatever the miners were carrying. So, the friends devised a plan and ate their gems. They didn't have any problems on their way in because they didn't have any money on them, and they wouldn't have any problems on the way out because their gems would be hidden in their stomachs. It would have been perfect had they not discussed the plan loudly in said forest while a thief sat hidden in nearby trees. He listened intently, decided that he would wait until they slept to cut the gems out of them, and emerged, begging for aid. He said that he had been robbed. He needed help. If he could just travel with them through this forest, he would be eternally grateful. The pair shrugged. Sure. They shared their food and started off on the trek. When they slept that night, the thief rose and immediately found himself looking at a sword point. He threw up his hands and kicked his companions awake. They were being robbed before... He had had a chance to rob them. He didn't say that part. It turned out that the chief of a local robber band had a magic bird. It was a parrot who knew things no one else did. The bird told them that travelers were coming with massive gems, but when they searched the prince, merchant, and the thief that they didn't know was a thief, they found nothing. The chief trusted his bird. The bird had never been wrong. The gems were here. Then he looked at the men and smiled. Tomorrow morning, he would cut open their stomachs. That was the only place the gems could be. Let's assume he was thorough in his previous searches. So, the prince, merchant, and thief were held for execution. The following morning, they were led to a clearing, where they met a man with a knife. It was time. The prince was about to volunteer to go first when the thief stepped forward. The pair was confused. Why was the man doing this? He didn't have a gem in his stomach. I know, the thief whispered, and I know you do. The bandit sharpened his knife not far off. He confessed that he had been planning to rob them in the forest, to do what these robbers were going to do, and cut them open and steal the gems. He was going to die anyway, now. If they cut open either of the other two first, they wouldn't stop at one. If they cut open the thief first, though, they would assume that they were wrong. They might even stop. At least the thief, in death, could do some good. He would gain the glory of a generous deed. Maybe he would be reborn into something better. The thief's final gambit paid off. The robbers cut him open, and they stopped there, chastising the bird for his lies. They let the prince and the merchant go, and the pair never forgot the thief, who, in the end, revealed himself as a good man. "'But you're not good, are you?' Cheeks spat. Victor said he didn't know where all this was coming from. They ate meat. They would all benefit from Lively's death. Chill out.' We're opportunistic omnivores, Cheek yelled. He couldn't sit and wait for this fight to happen. He had to stop them. But it was too late. Lively was tense. Rusty had been watching him from a distance, just like Victor had warned the bull. We don't know what set them off. A strange word, an unexpected movement, but as soon as Rusty snarled and Lively lowered his head, one or both of them were as good as dead. The animals watched in shock as Rusty tore into Lively and Lively thrust upward with his horns, ripping into Rusty's side. It wasn't over quickly, but when it was quiet, the air thick with the stench of blood, the lion was victorious. Lively, the bull, was dead. Then, Rusty broke down. Holding the corpse of his friend, he sobbed. "Why?" Why did Lively have to attack? The bull was his best friend. He had loved Lively. He wiped his tears and turned to Victor, thanking the jackal for helping him to see who he could trust. He had been wrong to cast Victor out. From this day forward, Victor would be his second in command. Rusty looked to the body of his friend, then to the rest of the animals surrounding him. Victor understood what was going through his head. He told the lion not to worry. He would help the lion know the animals he could trust. He would be Rusty's true friend. Rusty thanked Victor, said he understood what had to be done next, but he wouldn't do it and he wouldn't be here for it. Rusty went for a walk. Victor turned to the assembled animals. Well, what were they waiting for? Victor came through for them. They could do what he knew they had been hoping to do, since they saw the bull, dig in. The rest of the animals rushed forward, and as Cheek approached, Victor held out his paw. Um, what did Cheek think he was doing? Cheek had all those principles he was going on and on about. Maybe he could eat those instead. Cheek said that Victor couldn't be serious. Victor called out to the wolf and the tiger nearby. "'Hey, if his brother approached the court at all, "'the court had Victor's permission, "'no, his blessing, to eat him.' "'Cheek watched in horror as the other animals parted, "'and his brother ascended the base of the banyan tree "'to take his seat next to the lion's throne. "'Victor had done it. "'He had won.'" It's a kind of bleak ending. We didn't go into it, but there was a lot more in the story about how advisors love it when their rulers are isolated and scared, because it gives them more control. When people feel alone and anxious, they can be easier to manipulate. To me, it speaks to the necessity of connection, understanding, and communication. Ultimately, this part of the story is tragic, because Victor uses the power of the stories to twist the worlds of Lively and Rusty, until they're on a collision course with each other. There is more to the story. The first part, what we told over the previous two episodes, only comprises about half of the Panchatantra. So, if you enjoyed this scattershot collection of bite-sized stories and want to hear more, let me know. Next week, we're back in the grim fairy tales. And we learn that you should be nice to people, no matter how ridiculous their facial hair looks. Creature this week is Ningyo, from Japanese folklore. Now, we all know mermaids and sirens. The Ningyo are kind of like those, but they're the little mermaid was the size of an actual fish, had a tuft of scraggly hair on her head, webbed fingers, little sharp teeth, and quote mouth like a monkey, whatever that means, and golden scales. This thing is apparently irresistible though, with a hauntingly beautiful voice to match its haunting, everything else. It apparently sounds like a flute or a Skylark, and though it doesn't have words, is apparently inescapable. Like most fish, they don't like to be caught, so if you manage that, throw it back. Though, if your fish has scraggly hair and fingers, you probably shouldn't take that thing home anyway. They prefer to be in their complex societies under the sea, and are known for their healing abilities. If you somehow find yourself on their good side, they can give you immortality by eating just the smallest amount of their flesh. Don't worry, they can heal themselves, it's what they do. Drinking their fish blood will heal any illness, but if you try to take either of those things without them being offered, you'll be the victim of, quote, dire consequences. Probably a whole city of terrifying fish people coming after you, but who knows. In the years since, the creature has apparently gotten a makeover and transformed from a creepy little fish humanoid with sharp teeth something resembling a mermaid. Though, it's only slightly less creepy. A picture I found and posted on the website has a creature with the body of a fish and the head of a woman. Yeah, just the head. And even that both has horns and fish eyes, looking off in two different directions. So, yeah, only slightly less creepy. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. The theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Myths and Legends is a registered trademark of Bardic Enterprises, LLC. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.